Welcome to the Blue Oasis Podcast. This is the podcast for finding peace and prosperity, learning the history of hobbies, as well as developing a little side hustle. If you want to find peace and prosperity in your life, this is your show. Get ready. You're listening to the Blue Oasis Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Rothstein. All right, let's get to the show. All right, and uh, welcome back to the Blue Oasis Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Rothstein. With me is Christopher Pellegrini. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Thank you, Adam. Uh, I'm just glad I got that right um, <laughs> out of all the things. It gets misspelled a lot as Pellegrino because people know the, the sparkling water. Um, so if you uh, remember that, you're about 80% of the way there on the pronunciation. Uh, and all I had to worry about was a Steen and a Stein when they misspoke. Uh, um, okay. Uh, so tell me how you uh, got into the alcohol business. Okay. Um, so we'll go way back in my journey with beverage alcohol. Uh, this takes me back to when I was a teenager, actually. And I was studying about prohibition and I found out about bathtub gin and moonshine, that sort of thing. So I was like, Oh, people were making their own alcohol. I wonder how you do that. So I looked it up, figured out that it was not that challenging, at least to make alcohol, to make ethanol is not that hard to make something palatable is a bit more challenging, of course, but then one thing led to another. And before I knew it, I was secretly making my own homebrew as a teenager in my bedroom closet. And um, my parents weren't very happy with that. So I had to give up on that after a while once they finally figured out what was going on. But I, that turned into a, a, a pseudo apprenticeship at a lo- local micro, microbrewery in Vermont and when I was still a teenager. And, you know, fast forward, I end up in Japan many years later, and that intense interest in handmade small batch alcohol had stayed with me. And when I came over here, it was just, there was so much quality everywhere in the sake industry. And as I would soon find out, but I had never heard of before, the shoju and awamori industries. Um, What is that? The shoen on it? I, I can't even pronounce Shochu. it. <laughs> Shochu and awamori are two are Japan's two indigenous spirits. Um, so it was a little bit of a jump for me from craft beer to craft spirits. But I think once you get to know these drinks a little bit better, you find out that they're, hey, these are like the craft beer of spirits almost. They're made from so many different base ingredients there's so much history behind it. And so much of it is about the people, the place and the process. And it's a really, really beautiful thing. It's a huge thing. It's a huge part of the Japanese economy that's just hiding in plain sight. Most people in the U.S. and other parts of the world have never heard of shochu before, or they think that they've heard of shochu, but what they've actually heard of is soju, which is a Korean spirit. Um, which really, other than the fact that they both start with an S and rhyme, have very little in common when it comes down to it. But they get conflated all the time. It's, it's very, it can be quite confusing. But these spirits, um, Shouchu and Awamori, have been around for five, six centuries. They are not a fad. They're not a trend. They are part and parcel of Japanese cuisine. And they are everywhere. I mean, it's, it's just a part of the day in and day out. And it is amazing to me that they haven't been discovered yet overseas. If you want some context, there is more shochu and awamori produced in Japan every year than tequila in Mexico. That's amazing. That is amazing. Um, it is. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. So, and, oh, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And yet, yeah. And yet, what percent I, according to what I was able to dig up, um, about 66% of tequila is exported. It leaves Mexico, a lot of it going north into the United States and in, up into Canada as well. 
66%, less than, far less, far, far less than 1% of shochu and awamori output every year leaves Japan. So it is this, it's this behemoth. It's this, it's the elephant in the room, really. It's the last big secret that Japan really has up its sleeve. And I just ran face first into it. And I had no idea what it was going to be like. I wasn't expecting it, but it was my intense interest in these small, you know, these family made drinks, small, small company drinks. And I was smitten and I haven't turned back. I just, you know, been, been going for it ever since. That's, that's definitely what, what I've been doing with this, just going for it, just keep pursuing uh, the passion. Um, is, what was the first thing you noticed about Japan, like their culture uh, compared to the difference of the United States uh, when you moved? That's a, that's a really interesting question, Adam. Uh, the reason why it's interesting for me is because before I moved, before I moved to Japan, I lived in South Korea for a couple of years. And before that, I lived in Spain. And the two countries that I had lived in before moving to Japan were so radically different from each other that when I finally arrived in Japan, my third turn of being a, you know, a full-time foreigner in how many years? In about Within the span of about four or five years, I, I, it didn't throw me for as big of a loop as it might have. I think is what I'm going to say. So when I ran up against things that might have caused culture shock, especially the superficial stuff, the things that you can see on the surface, it didn't really throw me. I was like, okay, that's different. I don't understand why it's that way. There's nothing I can do about it. If I happen to feel uncomfortable about it, or I don't like it so much, there's nothing I can do. So I'm going to adjust my expectations. I'm going to adapt and I'm going to accept what I can. And so the stuff that really struck me as different was much deeper. Um, it was, it wasn't the food that people eat or the clothes that they wear. It was more about human relationships and expectations. And so one thing that I had noticed and is a big thing in, in South, South Korean culture and Korean culture writ large is the respect that is automatically afforded to people who or senior to you. And that often just is as simple as having an earlier birth date than you. And it's, it's just part of the culture that governs many, many, many interactions. And when I came over here, I noticed something similar. I was like, oh boy, here we go. Here we go again. Um, I know what this is, but I also know that I'm not easily going to be able to get used to it. So I'm going to just have to bite my tongue for a while on this whole, uh, the junior senior relationships. Um, and to this day, and I've been here for 20 years now there, that's one thing that still kind of is hard for me. Um, in that sense, it still ca causes a, a bit of culture shock, whereas pretty much anything else is just part of the way that I live my life now. Um, but the one, the one thing where I don't, I don't really like it and that's part of it. I've learned to, I've learned to expect it and deal with it and accept it, but I don't. I don't necessarily respect it all the time, but that's just part of life when you are living in a, in a new environment, in a new culture. It, there are definitely some things that throw you for a loop. I think uh, just moving a lot. I think um, when you do that, like e even if it's like just across town, I mean, it, it's mm. a little bit of a difference there because, you know, there's that one shop there that you went to for so long, but then you move a little bit down and you just, and it's like, oh, now I have to go 15 miles the other way sort of thing. But, yeah. But there, right. there is that. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, when, it, now you've been licensed uh, before you were 20, uh, before you, you were 21 uh, to actually make your own craft, but you, you couldn't taste it. Ah, that's right. Yeah. So um, I, I wouldn't say that I was licensed. I would, I would say that I was employed. Um, what ended up happening was when I was working at the, at the brewery in Vermont, I was, I was so interested in all aspects of the game of building, building a business out of something that was so cool. And that actually the owner at that time 
Lawrence Miller, this is Otter Creek Brewery in Middlebury, Vermont. Um, he had built this business out of his, his hobby, his home brewing hobby. And I had a home brewing hobby that my, my parents squashed because I was under age and it was probably illegal. So I kind of get where they were coming from. But uh, I kind of had visions of doing something similar. I, I really loved how excited people got about something that I had created. I mean, it's like, I, it's kind of like being a chef, I suppose. Uh, you, you love it because of the process and you love it because I, I believe people are sustained by the reactions that, that their customers have to their, their food. And I was really interested in seeing how this was done on a more professional level. And so I went to Lawrence and I said, hey, give me a job. And we created this sort of like loose apprenticeship where I was learning all aspects of the business and I was in packaging and I was shadowing the seller master. And then I was in, I was in engine with working with the engineers to keep everything, keeping the boil running and then the labeling and blah, blah, blah. And then one day, um, one one week, I should say, in the same calendar week, we had a bit of a crisis. Our first brewer wrecked his back and was out of commission for a couple of months. And then in the same week, and this is a complete coincidence, our second brewer uh, left the state to join the circus. So I, that's not a joke. You know, oh. that's, I'm telling the honest truth. And so the, this, the president of the country, Mr. Miller came in and does anybody in this place know how to make beer other than him, of course, but he was not really interested in putting the, the long boots on again and standing up on the brewing platform. And, you know, little teenage me was like, huh? and uh, it was determined that it was legal so long as I didn't drink anything that I was making. And so I became the youngest commercial brewer in the United States. And it was, it was just, I was in the right place at the right time. It had nothing to do with my skill set. It just happened to be that I had made beer. I had read homebrewing books by Charlie Papazian. I knew, I knew the basic science behind it. And I had already been following the, the two head, the two brewing guys around up on the platform. I was like, a, I was like a damn puppy dog. They couldn't get me to leave them alone. I was just like, well, why do you do it like this? And what, how, how long do you keep it at that temperature? And what if it goes higher than that temperature? And they're like, oh, kid, come on. And, and then soon I had taken, I had, I was filling in for them. And then I uh, fortunately didn't have to give, I didn't have to go back to um, stacking boxes on pallets uh, after that, because I had quickly become a little bit too useful. Um, yeah, it was, it was, so that's, I wasn't, to go back to your question, I wasn't licensed. I was more just in the right place at the right time. And I was, I was employed to do it. That's, that's for sure. But uh, yeah, it was uh, a lot of fun. It, well, yeah. And of course, I mean, I think it was a little more uh, based on what you said to me just now, than just being at the right place at the right time. You still, you still took your time, your free time to learn how to make alcohol and mm -hmm. and as a teenager like like uh like growing up in um the mid-atlantic like that even even that was frowned upon like like they would have thought you were out of your mind like no you're supposed <laughs> to be you're supposed to be learning about um history science and yeah and if you want to make money, mow the lawn um, or work at the subway or something, not, not right. make alcohol in your bedroom. Uh, yep. No, that's very, that's definitely true. And when my parents found out that I had been, I had been brewing, they just, they couldn't conceive of it. That was part of the reason I was able to fly under the radar for so long. It's, they just, A, didn't know how beer was made. B, couldn't fathom that their son would be making it in his bedroom. And uh, yeah, but then one, one day I was just, I was, brewing in the kitchen at the wrong time my father came home unexpected and that was the end of that so uh, oh well but it, it all worked out i mean it turned into a job which turned into stronger passions and then that stayed with me when i came over here and now i'm doing something completely it's still beverage alcohol related but it's a very different angle um but still you know paying the utmost respect to the craft and trying to help them spread the word yeah, well, it, it it's yeah, it wasn't and the end of the world for you. It was just some. It was just like a. It was more the of a learning opportunity, yeah, right. so to speak. But 
yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you it's yeah, you did get grounded for a bit, did you, or anything? <laughs> I, I did. I did lose a, a fair number of privileges for a little while. Yes. <laughs> oh, I. Well, my it, my parents were see my father at the time can't remember which school he, he was at he was at he was like the superintendent of some school district maybe and then my mother my mother was a deacon in the episcopal church so they were two reasonably um well-known folks in our very small community and that was my making illicit alcohol in the in the in the house was probably not going to be great for their local reputation so that that was uh the end of that <laughs> oh. Well, it probably all did work out for the best. Um, I think it did. Yep. Um, is there a d- different process between uh, making wine? Have you ever made wine or beer or just or just straight whiskey or how? Like you've made them all. Well, I haven't. I mean, I've made. I've I've certainly been to all of the breweries and distilleries associated with what you have just described. Um, in terms of, if I may be so bold as to rope Japan into this, Japan's most famous drink is called sake. And it's actually called Nihonshu, but everybody internationally calls it sake, which incidentally in Japan, Japanese just means alcohol. So, but whatever, it doesn't matter. If you say sake, people know what you're talking about. Um, sake is often mislabeled uh, as a rice wine, but it's not really a wine at all. Wine is made from grapes, and then also some other fruit can be made into things that people call wine. But um, right, uh, sake is more like a beer, actually. And beer and sake require a conversion of starches into sugar before you can ferment and make alcohol. Um, Grapes are easy. Grapes are wonderful because they're little sugar balls. And all you need is yeast to make the to do the conversion, to create alcohol. With rice and other grains, and for beer and whiskey, we're talking about barley most of the time. Barley has complex bundles of sugars that are starch chains, and yeast can't convert those into alcohol. There's there's a step that has to happen first. It's the sacrification of those starches, the conversion of those starches from starch into simple sugars, namely glucose. And so in the beer and whiskey world, you're talking about malting and malted grains are just the foundation of beer and whiskey. And malting is, it's a, it's a rather, um, it's, it's reasonably complex. It takes a lot of labor if you're going to actually mulch, no few breweries and distilleries malt their own grains these days, but you're basically tricking the grains, the barley grains, into converting all of their internal starches into sugar just before they think they're about to germinate, before they think they're about to become new barley plants. And then you stop that process by, by putting them in a kiln and basically cooking them. And, it, and it's, it cuts the process short before the grains can reach their goal. And then now, then you have little, then you have little sugar what are they like nuggets or something little grains of sugar just like a grape almost but you needed that one extra step with rice which is also a grain especially in this part of the world there's a different there's no malting involved but there's a different means to that end and that happens to be something called koji k-o-j-i and koji is japan's and this is very sexy it's Japan's national mold, M-O-L-D, or M-O-U-L-D, depending on which variety of English you subscribe to. Uh-huh. And it is something that occur- occurs naturally in the environment. And it's a mold that is central to pretty much everything fermented in Japan. So we're talking about miso. We're talking about soy sauce. Of course, it's sake. It's shochu. It's aomori. It's a bunch of other drinks that are made with koji. And koji is an, a microorganism that will grow on grains in the right environment, usually a humid environment. And those, those mold spores will create enzymes that basically do the same thing as malting. They cut the starch chains into simple sugars. And then you can brew with those 
grains of rice or grains of barley. You can use koji on barley too. So um, it's a bunch of different mechanisms, processes for getting to the same point. And that goal is to have an abundance of simple sugars that the yeast can go to town on. And then the yeast creates, and this is common for all types of alcohol, whether it's wine or whiskey or beer or sake or shochu or awamori, the yeast will create three things when it encounters, when it eats glucose, it will create heat and a lot of it. It'll create carbon dioxide and a lot of that too. It will also create alcohol, which is what, what we, what we want. And yeast has us humans very well trained because it wants sugar. And all it has to do is excrete this weird ethanol stuff that we go gaga for, and then we give it more sugar. And so then it's, you know, it's a pretty good, it's a good symbiotic re- relationship. Yeast really have us under their thumb. Uh, there is, there is one thing that I, that just came up in my mind, uh, blueberry wine. Um, is mm-hmm. there a difference between that and grape wine? It's a, it's a sim- very similar process. Um, that is, as you can imagine, is, is not quite as common. Um, but you know, there's, I know of some amazing, for instance, cherry wine that's made in Denmark, like unbelievable stuff that is, um, available in some areas by a, a, a brewery called, or I guess it's a vineyard called, uh, Frederikstal. They make some unbelievable natural cherry wine that is naturally fermented. There's no human intervention whatsoever. Um, just unbelievable stuff. So, of course, I, I think a lot of purists will say a blueberry wine, that's not a wine, or a cherry wine, is that really a wine? I don't, I don't really want to get into that argument with people, but the process of making it is not radically different. It's not really that different at all from uh, making wine from grapes. So, you know, people are going to get upset about it, but I don't, well, actually, I take that back. Some people will get their knickers in a twist about it, but I don't think it's really that big of a deal. The one thing that I will um, say, like, I mean, it's kind of like spread. It's kind of like jam or jelly. Uh, mm-hmm. It is probably just, um, it, you know, it's like blueberry jam, strawberry jam, raspberry jam. Like, like that, that's what I'm viewing it as. It's like, does it become a different thing just because of a different flavor? No, I don't think so. It's wine is wine. Wine is wine is wine. If it's made from fruit, I suppose. Yeah. And so the reason just to get back to my point from before, and you raise an interesting point there as well. Can, can there be a rice wine? And the reason why I, I said before that I don't think it can be called a wine, and I'm not saying that you are either. I think you're focusing on fruit. Um, but sake is not a rice wine because you need that extra step. And, you know, rice is not a grain. And I don't think or rice is not a fruit. I don't think you'd ever mistake it for a fruit. But um, it's, again, while I, I, I agree with you, like, yeah, I mean, there's there's beer made from so many different ingredients. There's there's uh well shochu is made from so many different ingredients it's all called shochu i think wine probably um and at the risk of angering some big 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 time wine lovers out there yeah it's, if it's made from made from fruit then hey you're gonna have a uphill climb on explaining why that doesn't qualify as a wine yeah oh man definitely um so uh, yeah oh yeah, Korea, yeah, Korea. Um, uh, very. I, the cities there are not that big. I I have to ask you about that. Like different differences in population, um, or how they go about their day to day tasks. Um, it's it's not hustle and bustle. Is it hustle and bustle compared to like New York? I think, York? It, I think it is actually. Yeah, it's pretty. I mean, they, their biggest in South Korea, Seoul, Seoul is pretty damn big. Um, I don't know the exact population, but I think it's. I would not be surprised if it's over eight million people. So it's 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 a decent number of folks. Not not as big as Tokyo, but 
Um, when I lived in Korea, I lived in what was a relatively small city and now has become what's known as Changwon. And I think that has close to a million. And that's kind of on like the not such a very impressively sized city. So it's a it's a reasonably um, well packed geographical region. That's for sure. Uh, not not to the extent that Japan is, I would say. Uh, Japan is very, very, you know, a, a lot of the country just is straight up inhospitable because it's so mountainous. So you got all these people crammed into certain population centers. And Tokyo is the one where I live. And it's, geez, the entire metropolitan area is, is well over, well over 20 million people. So it's a, it's a, it's um, a force to be reckoned with, I think is a way to put it mildly. In Korea, the Korea was really, and I, I, I love it. And I went, I go back a couple of times every year. I, it's an absolutely beautiful place. The food is amazing. The people are great. And it's, it's really, it's really interesting. Um, culturally, there's so many differences between Japan and Korea, but I think it's safer to say that Korean culture is a little bit closer to the side of the spectrum that Japan is on than you would say um, many European cultures are, for instance. Um, so there's definitely that, that um, let, you know, spectrum that you could place these different cultures on. And then also things come into play, like the way that people accept information, the expectations about surrounding communication relationships between the speaker and the listener, all sorts of things. Korea is certainly much more on the, on the Japanese side of the spectrum than, than America is, for instance. Um, having said that, I remember somebody, somebody saying to me, and I thought this was hilarious because I'm of Italian heritage myself. When I first moved to Korea, somebody said to me that Koreans are the Italians of Asia. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Okay, how so? And, and they said, well, everything's about food. <laughs> and um, they, they can be, you know, they, they can be incredibly inviting and warm and huggy and everything sometimes. Um, and they're very, they can also be, you know, there's an anime, there's an animated nature to communication there that it, I do remember like my, my grandparents and my great grandparents talking with, talking with their hands all the time. And I don't know how accurate that, uh, that comparison is when you put everything into into perspective, but I do remember it being kind of helpful for me when I first started living there in terms of how I understood the interactions, which for me, at least now that I've spent more than half of my life being a, a full-time foreigner in various cultures, I realize that the communication is so important uh, just, just uh, in terms of your overall success, your path to success, um, your ability to do anything that you really want to do and your autonomy. Um, your ability to live your life in the way that you want. And yeah, that's, uh, I mean, a hundred percent. Is there any thing that like, do you prefer living in the city or actually just living in like the suburbs, but for like some rural area? Because I can tell you one thing is that like, I grew up in the small town vibe, even though I was like, you know, 20 minutes lived 20 minutes away from DC grow, growing up. Oh, okay. Uh, so it was just very interesting and there, but like, I can tell you like, like you can tell the difference uh, right away from where I lived and then the heart of DC. Like, like it, it, it's very weird though. You can tell, mm -hmm. you can tell the difference there, but, but what do you, what have you lo loved living in the most a rural area suburb city that's that's interesting um i'm from a tiny town originally bristol vermont population 2200 on a good day i think and you know i'm i'm from the mountains from, from the hills in the middle of vermont and then i ended up in in seville spain and then masan or what's now Changwon, south korea and now tokyo japan so i've just kept getting going bigger and bigger and bigger and i never really expected myself enjoying the big city life as much as i do but i do i do enjoy it and one thing i really like about tokyo is the anon anonymity of it i really do enjoy 
people not really treating me like I'm different, which you certainly get in, in places that are um, smaller and where people just naturally interact more. Japan, Tokyo can be, Japan's fine, but Tokyo can be a little cold, can be a little New York. You know, folks are just so, they got their blinders on, they're just living their lives. They're like, just don't bother me. And that can be unwelcoming for to a certain extent and it can wear on you after a while i mean i'm not gonna lie i i've lived next door to my neighbors in my apartment building there's a you know a flat on each side i do not know them i've no, i've lived next to them for years the only time we we talk or feel like we might need to talk to each other is when there's a, a big earthquake <laughs> and then all of a sudden everybody wants to be friends um so yeah, I, I I do really like Tokyo, but that wears on me a little bit. So another really really enjoyable part of the country for me is an is the island where surprise surprise all the shochu is made, which is in Kyushu, Kyushu Island down in the southwest. And there's seven prefectures there, and I think the largest city population wise, which is Fukuoka, might be two million people. It's really it's not breathtakingly um rammed but there's just a bit there's more you know love your neighbor just like let's help each other out let's be friendly to each other people are more prepared to stop and have a chat you do also get a lot more unwanted attention especially if you go further further south and on the island um and then you just you can't have a you can't really have a a coffee by yourself down there you're going to get somebody coming over to talk to you half the time um but I guess what I prefer is some balance between the two. I don't want either of them full time, but I know that's really hard to ask for. I don't know how you how you engineer that. But I overall, the the end of that story is that I'm just happy here. I'm happy to be in this country. I'm happy. There's no perfect place on earth, obviously, and and uh, you know you take the good with the bad, and there's a whole lot more good here than there is bad. So I'm very very blessed in that respect. Speaking of coffee, uh, I've heard of Irish coffee, and and uh, my me- my mentor uh, Jason Stapleton, he will put uh, like barley, not 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 barley's or I I it's not it's not barley's or, or Bailey's. Why, why Bailey's? Yeah, there you go. Oh, my, why did I say barley's? Um, because I've been talking about barley all coffee, all- and and his uh, new wife. Um, uh, yeah, like, 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 just turns a blind eye to it too. Like, like that is who he is, and he has uh, just done an incredible job with his nomad network. And 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 there are good things uh, about drinking alcohol, but in moderation. And and some people mm-hmm. can find it that even in the morning you can get stuff done with a little uh, snork. Um, every yeah, night. you just, you just gotta, this is, this is the key. I mean, is just sipping slowly and then don't overdo anything, you know? Um, and then you, yeah, if, if you're, if you're at liberty to do that and you don't have to be driving a car anywhere, then fantastic, more power to you. Um, so I, I have my personal rules generally unless i'm on vacation is i try not to drink anything before five o'clock p.m p.m not a.m um and that's just me and uh i am a very very deliberate and slow paced sipper of everything whether it's the craft beer that i love or shochu or awamori and you just mentioned an irish coffee there's a I, there's a, a drink that I really love. I think it's a great brunch drink since we're talking about kind of morning sipping. Um, there's a, there's a roasted barley shochu available in the U S called, uh, Mugi Hoka. And it's really nice when you mix it about, you mix it about one to one or 50, 50 with cold brew coffee over ice. And then you top it up with some sparkling water or club soda or whatever, and just mix it lightly. And it's a really nice kind of, you know, it has, it's a, it's a coffee drink, but it has, you know, this super 
deep roasted note thing going on, some good nuttiness. Um, so I, that, that, that inspired, I might have to make one of those after this interview actually, cause that sounds really good right now. Yeah. Oh, oh so, um, we have to talk about baseball. Um, okay. Because, <laughs> because I mean, I think you and I are both big baseball fans. I mm-hmm. have uh, grown up an Orioles fan. Um, okay. And that was the first uh, baseball team, first professional team I fell in love with, even though they were terrible. And uh, Ripken was gone by the time I started rooting for them. Okay. Uh, so, so that that uh, it's just like it's like it's like you get to the party, no chocolate cake. Apparently, I know. Yeah, that's brutal. Um, yeah, I, I'm. I'm. I'm uh... If you if you check my my Instagram, you'll see that I I met a very 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 well loved former Oriole, um, who I don't I assume some of your listeners are also in the same live in the same area of of uh, the East Coast that you do. Is that correct? Um, yeah. Well, they're they're mostly in Mar- if any if they're anywhere they're in Maryland now, and I'm in Florida. Okay. But, but oh, when, I, okay. I I grew up in Maryland. Did you really? Um, okay, because I, I met um, Eddie Murray at uh, at a bottle shop just uh, last um, last September. You you met Eddie Murray? Yeah, I did. Oh. I did meet Eddie Murray. I was at the Remington Bottle in Baltimore, which is oh. this great little bottle shop there. And Eddie was Eddie was there, and so I quickly ran to the beer cooler and grabbed a six pack of steady Eddie, which is the beer that's named after him and got oh, a picture that, with him. It's on my Instagram. I'm very pleased with that one. Oh. Um, and he's, a, and I didn't get to talk to him that much. I maybe only got to talk to him for about 10 minutes, but he's an absolutely lovely guy. And, oh, is um, that the, Oh, is this the one? Oh, oh that's not, not, uh, okay. No. Oh, uh, no. If you, if you, on my Instagram, it's probably if you look at it, I think it's posted in in rows of three. One, two, three. It's four four rows down. Okay, four rows timeline. down. If I oh, there it is, there it is. Um, and oh, and there is the steady Eddie. Um, wow, and and he's wearing an Under Armour shirt of yeah. <laughs> all things Maryland. How how about that? Um, how about that? The yeah. So that, um, I'm, you know, I'm, and I'm from Vermont, so we don't have any r- real base. Oh, I take that back. We do have a we have the Vermont Lake Monsters. Um, that's about you, it. But you have like a ball at that. I point. think it's short season a ball. I think it's rookie a ball. Yep. Um, and I, the first amazing player that I saw play baseball in Vermont, playing minor league baseball, was Ken Griffey Jr. because he played for the Vermont Mariners before he went on to Seattle. Oh, that is incredible. Wait, how old? I, I wasn't, when he was on the Mariners, um, yeah, I wasn't born when him and his father played. So, like, okay. yeah, you have, like, you have I a was good born five, in, in you have about five or six, you have about maybe seven years before um, I was born, actually, and that's quite um, telling. I, that should tell you a little <laughs> bit about my age. Um, so, there's... So there's that. Um, and then he went on and went to Cincinnati and he could have, uh, he, he definitely could have had a championship had he stayed and been on the team in 2001 because they had, mm. so, they like, they were like Ichiro had just gotten there and, um, and, yeah. and they won 116 games, which is like, who does that? And had he been there, I think, I think they would have. It could have pushed them over the edge. Yeah, could have pushed yeah. them over the edge. The Yankees might not have even been in the World Series, but uh, I think yeah. they would have, you know, found a way to beat Arizona and not. And some guy by the name of Luis Gonzalez would have not had the winning walk off hit. Yeah, yeah. So so yeah, some weird person that we don't know about. <laughs> um. Yeah. Uh, you have you been to games in Japan? I I am a huge I'm I'm uh yeah Ugh. I um I'm a huge Tokyo Swallows fan. 
And I have been going to games at Mini Jijingu Stadium since 2000, late 2002. I average close to, actually, I, not anymore, full disclosure. I've, I've just, because my passion, my hobbies related to these drinks have turned into another career. So um, I used to go to about 40 home games a year. And I even have a, I have a podcast that is dedicated to that one baseball team, the Tokyo Swallows. It's called the Tokyo Swallows podcast. And it comes out like once a month, if, if we're lucky, it's me and a couple of other friends who are also fans of the team. And we just shoot the, shoot the poop related to the Swallows. And last year they won the title for the first time in my 20 years here. And it, I still, I saying that I still don't truly believe that it actually happened because we've been through so much mediocrity over the years, but they, they just were, it was kind of a perfect storm, right place, right time. And they just put it together and down the home stretch, September and October were beautiful. November was even better. So, you know, beautiful, beautiful thing, beautiful game, beautiful team. Hopefully they don't slide back down into the cellar again. this year. Uh, Bryce Harper was going to go to the Tokyo. Um, oh, okay, it's not. It's not the Tokyo Monsters or. Oh my God! I you just said it and no, it's like I can't. There's no. We got two. There's two teams in Tokyo. There's basically there's the Giants who are the Yankees on steroids um, because there's no freaking salary cap, and then the Mets are the Tokyo Swallows, which is my team. So. Um, and they're kind of the, they're the lesser team. People always overlook them, but historically they are one of the, I, uh, I don't want to overstate this, but I would put them in the top, put them in the top half of like historical success for a franchise in the, in the country. So it's not nothing. Um, they haven't won a, uh, they hadn't won a championship in 20 years. So it was the previous one was 2001, just before I arrived. And then their most recent one was 2021. So it was a long time coming. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, like I've seen the um, stadiums in Japan. It is more rowdier than like a college football stadium or like, or like Friday it's night. organized football. rowdiness, right? Yeah. It, it's really like, interesting. Like, you they, don't they even sing chants and stuff. Oh, sorry. You don't even see uh, stadiums that big. Like that. Like it has to seat seventy five thousand people. Like some of those it stadiums depends on the. It depends on the stadium. Like Jingdu Stadium's the second oldest baseball stadium in in Japan, a professional baseball stadium in Japan. It's old enough to have hosted Babe Ruth at one point, and so it's it's like it's pretty modest. It's like 32,000 people capacity. Um, there are much bigger stadiums, but uh, the, the rowdiness at games tends to come from the, the unreserved seats in the outfield where there's a lot of singing and chanting. And there's a, a small band that plays the, the cheer songs for each of the, the players as they're at, at the plate. And it's interesting because there is this organization to it. There's a lot of energy and a a lot of noise, but it's only when your team is on offense and then you sit down and the other side does their cheer songs. So it's very, it's back and forth. You take a half inning break and then they take a half inning break and then it's back and forth nine, nine plus times. Um, So it's, it's interesting. And, And our team has this silly dance, the umbrella dance, that when we score a run, everybody whips out an umbrella. And then there's this song that everybody sings together as bob- as this whole gigantic sea of umbrellas is just like bobbing up and down around the stadium. It's pretty wild to watch. Um, and yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, when, when friends come to visit and they're like, I want to go to a game, let's get some good seats. I'm like, no, we're not going to get good seats. We're going to get crap seats because those are way more fun. And so you sit in the outfield unreserved and join in all the cheering and chanting and, you know, buy, buy draft beer from a keg off of somebody's back. Who's lugging it up and down the stairs and, and have some fun. Nice. Nice. Oh, man, it is. Oh, it's eight seventeen. I actually was not expecting to go so long as I did anything else you want to talk about. I, yeah, I'm, 
I, I know that this podcast is all about hobbies. And so maybe I can just clean it up here at the end with um, essentially what I'm doing right now is I have established an import company in the U.S. to bring Japanese indigenous spirits to the American market. And the name of the company is Honkaku Spirits. And that was basically the fruition of a pretty long journey here in Japan where I was just doing everything that I could in my free time to spread the word about these drinks. And then during the pandemic, it was March of 2020 and I quit my full-time job and I said, screw it, I'm, I'm doing this myself. And we founded that company in New York and haven't looked back, just reached our second anniversary. We're still kicking. And, and basically I'm doing I'm basically doing my hobby full time. And my hobby was being, a, you know, proselytizing for these drinks that nobody had ever heard of. And so, you know, a couple, couple morals to this story. Number one, make sure you have alternate access to health insurance. Um, number two uh, is, you know, basically I figured out that I was mostly, why did it take me so long to start this company? I was, I was waiting so long to give myself permission. I was looking for other people to give me permission. And I just finally figured out, I, I, I don't think if I, I don't know when I'm going to be more ready and you just kind of have to go for it. Now I picked a pretty incredible time to start a business. March, 2020 was wild timing. And, but I'm not sure if I would take it back. I'm not sure I would do it differently. It forced me to think about things in a whole bunch of ways that I didn't expect to have to think about them. I had to change the business model a couple of times. We, we had to be way more creative. We got delayed at every turn. We burnt through a lot of um, our resources that we thought we weren't going to need for as long as we really needed them. And it was tough and it still is today. But, you know, if you, if you're one thing that a lot of people need to just ask themselves is, is what am I waiting for? Am I waiting for myself to get out, out of my own way? And I think a lot of people are. Um, and that certainly was the case for me. And once I just decided, well, there's, there's nothing that's going to make me happier than doing this right now. And I will re regret it if I don't. And yes, I do have health insurance, even if I quit my, quit my job. So we're covered there. And so I just went for it. And uh, I think that's sometimes what it, that's all it just takes some um, takes giving yourself getting out of your own way give yourself the permission give yourself a shot, shot at it okay now you get the gears wrong as soon as i thought okay we're done here um in <laughs> in early of 2020 i i told myself i'm gonna write a book i'm gonna i'm gonna write a short book and i'd already basically written a novel um as well um and I finished this book called Growing the Game, uh, baseball's, hist um, baseball's History, um, How to Grow Baseball, that, mm -hmm. geez, about that. And, and I was going to a writer's club. We were meeting at Panera Bread every weekend. Then that hits. Then we were on Zoom. I get, uh -huh. and eventually I do get that finished um, Put it on Barnes and Noble, and and uh, didn't didn't go well. But you know, you do have to put yourself out there too, mm -hmm. um, as well. I mean, and then I decided, you know what? I want to narrate this. Um, I didn't do a good job narrating it. It was terrible the first time. Like go, like if you listen to it on Audible, it's going to be crap. I'm probably going to have to update it, but. But, you know, that writing has led me to produce um, several audiobooks um, and just do all this audio content as well, uh, whether it's this podcast or even some, even some stories I sold on um, uh, my own website, too. I mean, like, like, I'm just there, like, I, but, but, and, and. And aside from alcohol, like I can take this anywhere. I can take this Mac, this microphone and just go and record in any closet right. or studio mm -hmm. and just, and just read off my things. Um, mm -hmm. It is, 
and and I've like sold um like about five dozen audiobooks uh or pr- probably more because if you count the uh, picture audiobooks but it's like but I'm I'm just so into it as well because you know you don't you know the first foot is the longest stride you have to take the chance and I took it and I've got a side income and and I've had people uh wanting me to narrate some stuff for them and I made some money with PayPal invoices so there's that Okay, and now I'll ask you again just to make sure we are we good. Um, yeah, I th- uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, I think uh, I think the the moral of both of our stories is is just to to go for it. Yeah. Um, that's, that's all right. Basically, what it comes down to. Okay. In about. All right. I guess then I'll do it for the Blue Oasis podcast. Uh, this is going to be episode sixty-five. Um, so. Um, All right, so until the next one, stay safe, stay great. I'll talk to you all then. shop at a Walmart Vision Center, you get it. You know that you'll spend a little less on stylish glasses for the whole family. Welcome to the Vision Center. Let me know if you need help finding the perfect frames. Hey mom, you were right. These glasses are cool. Hun, they take our insurance. That means Papa's getting a new pair too. Whoa, glasses start at just $39. Next stop, groceries. So you can get a little more of what you need. Find a Vision Center near you. Save money, live better. Walmart.